Well, as you're turning your Bibles back to Acts 2, let me just say that it has indeed been a blessing being among you today. I mentioned to some of you uh, after lunch this afternoon that Harbor Reformed Baptist Church will always be in some sense our home church. And as Brother Kevin mentioned, you guys sent us south down to Ohio nearly 20 years ago. So we always feel like it's still home up here. And now that we have a daughter here, uh, I think those ties have been uh, increased and strengthened. But if you remember, we began to consider the third part of Acts chapter 2 this morning. I said that you can divide up the second chapter of Acts into three parts. You first have the gift of the Holy Spirit in verses 1 to 13. Then you have Peter's famous sermon, 14 to 39. And then you have the events that take place after that sermon. First in verses 40 and 41, events that happen straightway after the sermon on the same day. And then verses 42 to the end, events that took place after that. So what we did this morning, if you remember, we looked at verses 40 to 43, And there I suggested three things about the early church. First, its entrance, verses 40 to 41. Those and those alone who repented and believed the gospel were baptized and added to the church. So nobody enters the church save those who've been baptized as the outward expression that they've repented and believed. And then verse 42, you have the activities, the primary activities of the church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then in verse 43, we saw very briefly the attitude of the early church. Now that's going to bring us to verses 44 to 47, wherein we'll see four additional things about the early church. And let me give them to you on the front end, and then I'll read the passage and pray. First, we're going to see that the early church was a loving church, verses 44 and 45, a worshipful church or a worshiping church, verse 46a and 47a, a fellowshipping church, 46b, and then a growing church, 47b. Verse 44, now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do indeed rejoice at the grand and high privilege of assembling in your house on your day to hear your word. No, we pray that you would, for the sake of Christ, send your spirit among us. Enable us, O Father, to Hear your voice in and through this, your word. Amen. Four additional descriptions of the early church. First, it was a loving church, verse 44 and 45. And by this I mean it was a sharing church. Because, brethren, obviously you don't find the word love or loving in verses 44 and 5, but you find that they were a sharing church, and sharing is a practical expression of love. They cared for the practical needs of the congregation, and this is brotherly love. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now... If you remember this morning, I said that it's my personal preference to retain the word apostle in the title of this book. So we can refer to it as the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit through the Apostles. But I think it's important to retain the word apostles because there's unique things in the book that are restrictive 
to the apostolic age. And so at the outset, let me just say, I don't believe that Luke is here suggesting in this passage that the church has to, in every age, sell all their possessions and divide it up among the congregation. We have to remember 3,000 people were just added, recently added to the church, many of whom were likely from out of town. Thus, I don't believe that the church teach, or that this passage teaches us that no Christian should ever own or possess their own private property. I don't believe we can turn to the book of Acts and conclude that we all have to sell all of our possessions and sell and give out all the money so that we equally possess the same. But here's the point. If by God's grace, 3,000 people were suddenly saved and added to the church, and let's say that the bulk of those people were either extremely poor or from out of town, I think it would be proper for us to sell some of our possessions, if necessary, in order to take care of the needs of the congregation. Gordon Kelly put it like this. Many of the new converts had come from a distance. They were rejoicing in their new faith and fellowship. It was hardly the time to head for home. They needed more time to be taught the things of the Lord, to be disciplined by the apostles, and to forge the kind of personal relationships with other believers which would strengthen and equip them to be faithful witnesses for Christ wherever he should send them. Now, I say that for a couple of reasons, and I want to come to those here in a moment. But you find something very similar, in fact, if you know, in the next chapter. I mentioned this morning that uh, you have the miracle in chapter 3. Then you have another sermon by Peter, beginning at verse 12 of chapter 3. And that takes you to the end of chapter 3. And then as you come into chapter 4, you have something very akin to what happened at the uh, end of his previous sermon on the day of Pentecost. We read in verse 4 of chapter 4, however, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. In other words, there was another great influx of converts who were converted under this second sermon. And then uh, the middle part of chapter 4, they're persecuted for speaking uh, and preaching the name of Christ. They have a prayer meeting beginning at verse 23, where they pray for wisdom and strength and boldness to proclaim the gospel in the face of opposition. We read down in chapter 4, verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. This sounds, again, very similar to chapter 2, to our passage. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. They basically did the same thing here in chapter 4 that they did back in chapter 2. Now you pick up in verse 1 of chapter 5, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained... Was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it, not, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart and have not lied to men but to God? The point being the land that he sold was his before he sold it and the money he gained from it was his. Nor was he, nowhere was he commanded to sell the land nor was he commanded to give all of the proceeds to the church. The problem was deception. He deceived the people in thinking that he sold it and gave all the proceeds to the church. Let's say he sold it for 10 grand. And maybe he gave two grand to the church and pocketed eight. 
Well, that wasn't in and of itself sinful. The problem wasn't that he pocketed the eight as much as he gave the impression that he donated all 10 grand to the church. Now, if you go back for a second to our text, uh, I want to, uh, before I come at the abiding principle of verses 44 and 45, I want to say something very quickly in response to those who would seek to impose these verses upon every Christian community without qualification. First, the giving of Acts 2 and 4 was voluntary. Nowhere in these verses or the rest of the Bible are Christians commanded to sell all of their possessions. The actions described here in chapter 2, verses 44 and 5, and at the end of chapter 4 are voluntary. There's no commands given by the apostles or otherwise that they sell their possessions. And secondly, their giving was partial. The language here again in verses 44 and 5 indicate that they didn't sell everything but only certain things to meet specific needs. Because as we're going to see, brethren, in a minute, when we get to verse 46, they still had their homes. So nowhere in the passage is there indication in in chapter 2 or 4 that everybody sold everything. It was that some people sold certain things to meet certain or specific needs. Their giving was voluntary. Their giving was partial. Their giving was unique. Again, the context of verses 44 and 5 is rather unique and special. 3,000 people at once added to the church. Chapter 4, an additional couple thousand were added to the church at least. These are unique situations. It's not as if the rich sold their possessions so that the poor need never work again. Because remember, the Bible is a big book, and there's other principles that have to be brought to bear. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. I've quoted from John Stott a few times this morning. He said on this passage, It is important to note that even in Jerusalem, the sharing of property and possessions was voluntary. According to verse 46, they broke bread in their homes, So evidently, many still had homes. Not all had sold them. It's also noteworthy that the tense of both verbs in verse 45 is imperfect, which indicates that the selling and giving were occasional in response to particular needs, not once and for all. So it's not like they sold everything they had Once for all, they were ongoingly selling certain lands and possessions as the needs mandated. And again, that's true in chapter 2 as well as verse 4. But having clarified that, I don't want to round off the edges too much. And here I want to focus on this abiding principle. An aspect of brotherly love is that we care for the temporal needs of the brethren. Surely, friends, we find that abiding principle in this text, don't we? An aspect of brotherly love is that we care for the temporal needs of the brethren. Now, as I, as I suggest that principle and want to apply it here in a second, I hope you can anticipate a couple of texts. Let me uh, turn you to one of those, and that's First John and chapter 3. Notice 1 John 3, and let me just begin reading at verse 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Okay, so here's the perfect example of sacrificial, selfless love. Jesus giving his life. Verse 17, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. By this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. 
So what John is doing is he's setting out Jesus, giving of his life as not only the example, but the incentive for us to selflessly love the brethren. But he doesn't just leave it generic. Christ gave himself, we ought to give of ourselves. But he's more specific. That is, we're to give of our possessions to aid other brothers and sisters who are in need. So there's real need here. Not greed, real need here. And there's also the ability on the part of some to meet that need. But brother, remember that this principle that I'm upon now isn't just for the wealthy among us. Because keep in mind, all of us are wealthy in comparison to other countries. It was just a few years ago, I think it was in 19, that me and my wife made a trip to Cuba because we have 13 churches in Cuba. And 11 of them came together for a module that I taught. And brethren, it's amazing to think uh, uh, how impoverished these brothers and sisters are. I don't know that there was one person in the church that housed the module that had a car. And very few had motorcycles. All they had were bicycles. Very impoverished. There's needs all over the place. Yes, in our own congregation. I think you have to look first here in in your own congregation for sure. But then you have to look outside of it. And you say, but we don't make all that much money and we don't have a large savings. Well, then maybe, brother or sister, you just forgo that item or that item that you don't need. Perhaps instead you might give those monies to aid another brother or sister who has far less. But nevertheless, again, the abiding principle, I think, is evident, isn't it? The early church was a loving church, a sharing church. Secondly, verse 46a and 47a, it was a worshiping church. Luke mentions two aspects of their worship. Verse 46a, they prayed together, and 47a, they praised together. Let's look at these in turn. One, they prayed together. Verse 46a, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Now here, Luke, in this text, obviously, brethren, doesn't tell us exactly what they were doing in the temple. But they were unified continuously in the temple. So whatever it was they were doing in the temple, they did it continuously, and they did it in a unified way. But because we go down and find in the first verse of chapter 3 that they were in the temple praying, I suggest that more than likely praying is meant here at least in part, if not in whole. Now we know that the Jews gathered regularly throughout the day in the temple in those big uh, squares or courts. And so they went there to preach, didn't they? We know that from the book of Acts later on. They went there to preach, to witness because of all of the people. But they also went there at certain times of the day to pray. We find in verse 1 of chapter 3 that Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer that is the ninth hour. You know that it was tradition at this point for the Jews to three times a day go to the temple and pray at 9 o'clock in the morning, noon, and then three in the afternoon or the ninth hour. So most likely, though I can't be absolutely dogmatic, but most likely they went to the temple to pray. Remember the temple in Jerusalem had a massive outer court and it served as a place of social interaction. And so they went there no doubt to witness but also to pray. And then they praised together, verse 47a, praising God and having favor with all the people. This described their relationship with God, praising God and man, and having favor with all the people. And again, let's look at those in turn. They were praising God. 
Now, to praise God is to obviously honor or extol God. It fundamentally means to speak well of. And this can be done in a number of ways. We can praise God or speak well of God in prayer or in speaking to one another and or in song. And I want to suggest to you that probably all three of those are included here, but especially singing. And I suggest that because if you go back to the end of Luke's gospel, look at chapter 24 and the last two verses of the book. You have in verse 50 and 51, Jesus blessing them and then leaving them, sending back to the right hand of the Father. Verse 52, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Now again, they could have been in the temple and they no doubt were in the temple praising and blessing God in prayer and in dialogue. But it does seem, doesn't it, brethren, rather evident that what we have at the end of Luke and here in Acts 2 is that they were praising God through song. And we know that singing was an element of old covenant worship. And we know that singing is an element of new covenant worship. Psalm 9, verse 11, sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. Psalm 30 and verse 4, sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. And we could obviously multiply those texts, couldn't we? Many, many times. So throughout the Psalter, the book of Psalms, we're exhorted to praise God through song by speaking well of him, and in particular, speaking well of his person, that is his being, and his works. Psalm 96, 2, sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. 105, 2, sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk of all his wondrous works. Brother, that's what it means to praise God, is to talk well of him. We do praise him. We ought to praise him in prayer. Hallowed be thy name. That's giving praise to God. And speaking one to another, we can brag about God. We can extol God. We can talk well of God. And they did all of that, no doubt. But they also sang and praised him through song. And then they were having favor with all the people. This likely refers to the way many of the Jews viewed them. Remember, 3,000 of them were converted on the day of Pentecost, and no doubt many others had become interested. So I understand verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people to refer to the unconverted Jews who largely were interested in the things that this new church were doing. Perhaps they watched them worship God in the temple. Perhaps they saw how they practically loved each other by selling their possessions and sharing the proceeds. Others, no doubt, watched the way they interacted with neighbors, friends, family, and those in authority. Most of the time, even though the world may hate us, it has to admit that we're faithful and reliable people. And the change that came over these people was undeniable. Their masters saw it. Their family, friends, and neighbors saw it. Perhaps one of them was a slave, and the master said, I have such a useless slave. And then he gets converted after hearing Peter's sermon. And now he's the most diligent of all the slaves. And the master has to take note. But I think it probably refers to the other Jews who had yet to commit to this new religion, but nevertheless were interested in it. We find a similar statement in 1 Timothy 3, 7. Moreover, in reference to an elder... He must have a good testimony among those 
who are outside, that is outside the church, non-believers, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. His employer ought to be able to say something like this. Most people don't like him because he never laughs at the crude jokes. He never steals from the company. He's always there on time. He's given 30 minutes for a break. He takes 29 minutes. He works hard. He's diligent. He's faithful. But he gets on all of our nerves because all he ever talks about on his free time is religion. But I have to admit, I wish to God, he might say, that I had 10 or 15 of these people. Because he's faithful, hardworking, and loyal. I think this is the point here. I think they saw the change that came over these people. And particularly, probably, the love with which they had for one another. I think this was attractive to people. I think they saw this and they appreciated it. Listen to Mr. Calvin. This is the fruit of an innocent life, to find favor even among strangers. And yet we need not to doubt of this, but that they were also hated of many. He signifies briefly that the faithful did so behave themselves that the people did full well like of them for their innocency of life. Now we're going to, well, we would see if we kept moving through the book of Acts together. That again, most of the leaders hated them. But this is probably a reference to the common folk. Those who interacted with them on a popular level. I want to come back to some of these principles in a moment. But let's come then thirdly to a fellowshipping church. Verse 46b, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Notice first of all where they ate and how. Where they ate and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their meat literally. This means they fellowshiped one with another throughout the week. The phrase they ate their meat proves that these were common meals and not the supper of the Lord. The Lord's Supper, brethren, is never in the whole book. I mean, the whole book of God, the whole Bible. The Lord's Supper is never referred to in this way. They broke bread and ate meat together in their homes. That's the idea. It simply means they spent time together outside and or in addition to the meetings of the church on the Lord's Day. Now, brethren, I trust it goes without saying that we can fellowship with each other in a number of ways. The Lord has brought us together providentially in this age where we can text message, we can email, we can video chat. All of these are legitimate means of fellowshipping. But I do believe personally that it's ultimately more beneficial and helpful for us to be together in person. But it would be, I think, in every way lawful and helpful for us to utilize all of these other means of fellowshipping that the Lord has providentially afforded us. Furthermore, let me say this. Jerusalem, keep in mind, brethren, was a massive city. A massive city. And so I don't think that it was an easy thing necessarily to get from one house to another. They didn't have city buses, cars, or subways. They didn't even have bicycles like our Cuban brethren. Would it be nice if we all lived in one big, massive neighborhood? Well, yeah. We have several families that live right close to us, and I'm thankful for that. But brethren, remember, that's not the way that the Lord ordinarily has it. And it wasn't, there's no indication that that's what's happening in Jerusalem. If you have some families living on the west side of Jerusalem and other families living on the east side, it probably took them a long time to get from one side of Jerusalem to the other. I don't know. 
30 minutes, an hour, longer. I know that in our churches, oftentimes we have people that drive 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour. We have probably three or four families that drive 45 minutes to an hour. And I know that's not ideal, but brethren, it's doable. Where there's a will, there's a way. Some of these ladies, they have little chat rooms and little groups that they fellowship one with another throughout the day and never leave their homes. I don't believe that it's the Lord's will ordinarily to put us all on one side of the city. He scatters us out throughout the city and throughout the countryside. Brother, we're not Amish. We don't believe that we gather together and, and, and isolate ourselves from the world. Yes, we're to be no longer of it if we're Christians, but we're to be in it. And the Lord ordinarily saves us and scatters us over the city. And scatters us over the countryside. And I think we ought to be very thankful for the day and age in which we live, that we can get in a car. Brother, can you imagine? We get into a car and we turn on the radio, we turn on the AC, or we turn on the heater. I don't believe they had all of that back in first century Jerusalem. I don't think the donkeys or the camels or whatever it is that the wealthier of them rode had ACs or heaters. No, we're to be scattered throughout the city and countryside, but we are to make an effort. And I understand that everybody's, the season of our lives vary. I get it. If you're a young mom with a handful of little ones, you're not going to be able to to pack everybody in the van all the time, every day, and go across town. But again, it goes back to the principle. Where there's a will, there's ordinarily a way. And here we find that the early church fellowshiped fellowshiped with each other outside the formal gatherings of the Sabbath. How they ate. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Notice, with gladness, their hearts were filled with joy and gladness. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 13 and 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. This means, I think, everything they did, they did with gladness. Remember what I said this morning with reference to 43 and gospel fear, or that fear that Christians are to have. It tempered everything they did back in 42. I think this gladness mentioned here, it tempers everything mentioned previously. That is, they loved each other and they sometimes even sold some possessions in order to help those who were impoverished. But they did so with gladness. They sometimes gathered little ones and made the trip across town to fellowship with some other Christians, and they did so with gladness. They oftentimes met in the temple to witness, to pray and praise, and they did so with gladness. Brethren, I think sometimes it's possible that Christian people can give the wrong impression about the Christian faith. We can give the impression that it's antithetical to all joy and gladness. Remember what I said this morning, yes, especially our worship, but our whole lives ought to be characterized by this Christian fear. But it's a Christian fear that's always tempered with true gospel joy and gladness. You know, sometimes we make the distinction, and I think it's a helpful one, between happiness and true joy. Happiness can be circumstantial. The old writers typically used it as a synonym for gladness and joy, so I'm not beating upon the term itself per se. But nevertheless, brethren, you understand that the joy and the gladness here referenced is not the joy or the gladness of the world. It's a joy and a gladness that transcends circumstances. Let me just illustrate it. If you look uh, into chapter 5 and notice verse 40... 
And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. By the way, this refers to some of those Jews in leadership that didn't speak well of them, but hated them. Verse 41, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And then by way of passing, notice verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. With simplicity of heart, <clears throat> the Greek word translated simplicity literally refers to a singleness of heart. Sometimes you'll hear about divine simplicity. That means God is single and not composed of parts. To have a single heart is to have a sincere heart. They sincerely loved God and they sincerely loved each other. Again, I think this ought to um, be understood to characterize all that went before. Everything in verse 42, yes, and everything in verses 44 to 47. Everything they did, they did with gladness and with sincerity. They gave of their own substance to aid the brothers and sisters with simplicity of heart. They fellowshiped one with another. They went into the temple and witnessed and, and prayed and, and praised. They did everything with gladness and simplicity of heart. Fourthly, it was a growing church. Verse 47b, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This simply means the church continued to grow. Now, before I come to some of my closing thoughts, I want to attempt uh, to answer first a question or a few questions, related questions, about the Jerusalem church. How did a church this size gather together? Where did it gather? Did they plant other churches in Jerusalem and or elsewhere? Well, some of those questions we can answer and some we can't. We know at least three things are true with reference to this church. First, throughout the book of Acts, there appears to be but one single church in Jerusalem. I don't believe you can come to this text and support um, multi-site churches. I think this is one church. You say, but how can a church that big function? How can it gather? Well, secondly, we know from chapter 5 and verse 12 that they began to gather in the temple courts to worship God because the text says, Luke says, they were too large for any single house. And again, those courts, brother, were massive, could easily accommodate a church this size. I don't know all the particulars and don't plan to, but I do know that they remain to be a church and they gathered in those massive courts. And then thirdly, we know that many members of the church eventually returned to their own countries and in many, if not most cases, brought the gospel back with them. Remember what uh, we would have seen if we read it? I don't think we did in, in verse 1 or in chapter 1 that at the day of Pentecost, people came from many nations. And that was that whole issue with the tongue speaking, remember? When the Holy Ghost came and fell upon them, they spoke with other, other languages that were previously unknown to the apostles. And it was underscoring the fact that this is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. God is bringing together in Christ one new man, a nation of nations, a people made up of every tribe and tongue. And assumedly, many, many of these people, once they were adequately trained and discipled in Jerusalem, went back to their home countries as missionaries of sorts. And so are big churches always bad? Of course not. But you have to remember again, the church in Jerusalem was a unique church. It started with 120. There was 3,000 added to it and then seemingly several other thousands added to it 
right after that. It was a unique church, and as we continue to read, if we were to, through the book of Acts, we'd find out that it was a very influential church in the first several centuries. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Thus, in closing, let me say two things about this daily addition. First, it was a work of God. By this I mean any true addition to the church is the result of God's work. Notice how our author puts it. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. That is, being saved from sin by Him. And it goes back to what we saw this morning. Only those being saved should be baptized and thus added to the church. Because remember, water baptism is entrance into the local assembly. And so they were being saved. They were repenting and believing, which are gifts or graces from God. He gives repentance. He gives faith. And when they repent and believe, they're saved. And thus they express that repentance and faith through water baptism, and they become a member of the church. But here's my point. How are they being saved? But by the powerful and efficacious work of the Holy Spirit of God. Remember what Jesus said, I will build my church. Brethren, who's able to add a living stone to the temple but Christ himself? Secondly, and this is seemingly going to contradict that, but let me state it and clarify it. I said first it was a work of God. Secondly, it was a work of man. Now again, I'm not here trying to undo or unsay all that I've just said. I'm simply saying while salvation is of the Lord, he ordinarily applies salvation through the diligent labors of his people. Let me read a verse that you're familiar with. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6 and following. Notice what Paul says. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Brethren, there it is. I planted, Apollos watered. I labored, he labored, we both labored, but God himself gave the increase. And then he says, so that neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Because salvation is of the Lord, ultimately, man doesn't get the credit. But notice what he goes on to say. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So Paul says, I plant and another one waters. We both labor, but ultimately God gives the increase. That's why ultimately God gets the credit. And yet he rewards his faithful laborers. Calvin said on our text back at the end of Acts 2, although they did all of them stoutly labor to increase the kingdom of Christ, yet Luke ascribes this honor to God alone, that he brought strangers into the church. And surely this is his own proper work. For the ministers do no good by planting or watering, he's thinking of 1 Corinthians 3, unless he make their labor effectual by the power of his spirit. We find the same thing, don't we, back in Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So God has to build it, but brethren, it's not going to get built if the laborers don't labor. The laborers have to labor if there's going to be a building. But unless the Lord give them Ability and bless it, the house or the building will never be built. So I suggest to you that this obviously is a work of God, which ordinarily comes to pass in and through the labors of man. That's my point. All right, now let me close by saying this. How do they labor? One, they prayed. Two, they preached. And three, they loved. First, they prayed. Again, we've seen the early church giving themselves to prayer. Brother, you do know this. You can see it from chapter 1 onward. They're praying. 
They're always praying. They're praying corporately in the congregation on the Sabbath. They're praying every day in houses. They're praying in every day in the temple. They're praying and they're praying and they're praying. Why? Well, in part to ask that God would give them, give them boldness to speak. Because remember, they were feeling the opposition. But also success in their preaching, brethren. They understood that they had to labor. They understood that they had to plant and they had to water, but God had to give the increase. They had to labor to build the building, but God had to ultimately construct it. And so they prayed and they asked God to give them boldness and wisdom and ultimately success. And so this is why the early church devoted itself to the prayers. Verse 42. And continued daily with one accord in the temple. Verse 46. And so are we to gather as a church, as families, as individuals, and ask for the Lord's blessing upon our feeble efforts? Oh, for sure, brethren. And the Lord will give the increase as he sees fit. If it's one, if it's 10, if it's 50, if it's 100, if it's 3,000. Or sometimes zero. But the Lord, as the master of the harvest, brethren, he determines the ultimate outcome. All we do is beg of him for mercy. They preached. Again, we don't find the word preaching admittedly in verses 44 to 47. But notice we find it both before our passage and after it. Before our passage, of course, you had that long sermon of Peter that took up the bulk of Acts 2, and then you find it in 40 and 41. He's ongoingly preaching. And then you have the miracle, remember, chapter 3, and then he preaches again. Chapter 3, 12, to the end of the chapter. Brethren, he's preaching, preaching, preaching. And so by preaching, I don't necessarily mean solely preaching, but I refer to all verbal communication of truth. Communicating the truth through preaching outside and inside the church and personal conversations. Furthermore, we have to use, again, every modern avenue afforded us in our day. All forms of social media, printing press, and everything else. But brethren, we are to preach. We are to preach in the church. We are to preach outside the church. And we're to witness with our words. We're to communicate verbally the truths of the gospel that we saw this morning that Peter testified earnestly about the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, nobody was ever saved without, remember this morning, verse 41, Receiving the word. And then finally, they loved. That is, they validated the truthfulness of the Christian religion by the way they lived. Remember, Paul oftentimes speaks about adorning the gospel. Jesus spoke about letting your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Back in our church, we're going at present in our Sunday school class through church history. And I think I just finished last week uh, a brief survey of the fourth century. It's been said that the 4th century, the 300s, is probably the most important single 100 years in the history of the church outside of the actual apostolic age. Many good things happen in the 4th century. Many very important things happen in the 4th century. But a few weeks ago, we were considering what we typically refer to as the apostolic fathers, the apostolic fathers are not called apostolic fathers because they were apostles, but they were the fathers who were, in many cases, friends or disciples of the apostles. This is that generation that knew, in many cases, the apostles. One of them was a man by the name of Justin Martyr. 
His last name wasn't Martyr. He was surnamed that because he was martyred. And Justin talked about, now keep in mind, Justin was very early. He, he, he was one of those apostolic fathers. He lived very, very early in the second century. And he spoke about how it was that the church spread over those first couple of centuries. Now, we know the church is going to spread very quickly when we get to the fourth century with the conversion of Constantine, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that original first wave of, 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 of increase that the Lord gave to the church while being persecuted in the first couple hundred years of its existence. And of course, one obvious way, says Justin the martyr, was through the consistent testimony of regular, everyday, holy and loving Christians. Now keep in mind, nobody was ever saved by our example. We have to speak. But what Justin is here saying is that change that came over them and that holiness and that love and all the things that we're seeing in this passage, that in many cases hurt up the ears of those around them. And they began to think, what came over this man? What came over this woman? Why is it that you're now on time? Why is it that you're now honest and hardworking and diligent and all the things that Christians ought to be in the workplace? Well, let me tell you why. Because I've come to see my sins. And I've come to see in Christ a Savior. And now with both hands of my heart, I've embraced the whole Christ. And now my heart's changed. And now my priorities have changed. And now my loves and hates have changed. That's why. Listen to what Justin Martyr said. We who hated and destroyed one another... Now, since the coming of Christ, live closely with each other. We now pray for our enemies and endeavor to persuade those who hate us unjustly to live conformably to the good precepts of Christ to the end that they might become partakers with us of the same joyful hope of reward from God, the ruler of all. Joseph Martyr is saying, look, we used to hate each other, Jew and Gentiles, slaves and free Educated, uneducated, rich and poor. But then something came over us and now we're of one accord. And now we collectively with one voice, though we're so varied. And, and, and as I mentioned this morning, in many cases have little if anything in common outside of the things that matter most. And now we sell our possessions and help each other. Now we spend time with each other in houses breaking bread. Now we pray and sing, worship God, and we share the gospel together. And we gather on the Sabbath to do those things mentioned in verse 42. Thus, here's a description of the early church. They devoted themselves to the things mentioned in 42, and then they lived one with another, as we find it here described in verses 44 to 47. And the Lord was graciously saving sinners and adding them to the church as they prayed, preached, and loved. Brother, which of those three would you omit? Can we go without praying? No, because God has to bless the word. Can we go without preaching? No, because God has to bless the word. But do we omit loving? Of course not, because love adorns the gospel. There's a handful of you here tonight that was in the church when I came back in 95.
And I remember telling everybody who would listen and even those who wouldn't about this Little Reformed Baptist Church meeting in this school gymnasium. And I can't make up my mind which of the two things I love best about them. The preaching or the people. I was living at the Howland Rescue Mission, as some of you know. I was converted there a year earlier and walked a few blocks south from the mission to what was then Calvary Baptist Church. It was about six blocks south of the mission because the man I was converted under at the mission was an elder there, so that's where I went. And it was a good church. It was kind of a MacArthur-type church, four-point Calvinist, dispensational. But after a year, I realized, man, I'm too reformed for this church. But I'm Baptist. What am I going to do? Well, you know what? To be honest, I actually decided if I have to, I'll give up baptism, but I have to go to a church that's reformed. So I went to the pay phone there at the mission, and there was a phone book. There were yellow pages in the phone book, and I started combing through the churches. And guess what I found? A church by the name of Reformed Baptist. I thought, oh, this is too good to be true. So I rode my little bicycle north of here to the school where we, they were meeting. And that very first Sunday, somebody asked me home for lunch. For one year, Almost one full year, I went to every meeting at the former church. Not trying to cast shade on them, but not one time was I ever invited to somebody's house. Which was fine because the mission made its best meal on Sunday afternoon, so I went back and ate. But when I came to this church, I had to get a little black planner to keep Organized to know whose house I'm visiting next week. Mike, why don't you come over to our house for lunch today? Well, I got plans today. What about to next week? Let me see. I'm booked all the way till next month. Some of you remember the Corsons, Russ and Wilma. They used to take me to their house almost all the time, very frequently. And I think probably one of the things that stuck out the most to me was the fact that Wilma and and Russ, but especially Wilma, treated me like royalty. And here's a filthy, wretched, redeemed sinner, one year old in the faith, still living at the Holland Rescue Mission. And they would put me in their most comfortable seat. We would eat on fine china. We would sit back in the living room, take our coffee and dessert there. She would bring me a nice coffee and a nice cup with a saucer and then a a little other saucer with some um, dessert on it and a napkin. I just couldn't believe it. And I saw how this church, 10 or 12 families at the time, loved each other. Now, I was already a Christian. But that attracted me so much to this place. Well, I loved the preaching. I couldn't believe that the preacher was saying the same things I was saying in the mission, and these 12 families were actually wanting to hear it. It was the preaching, for sure. But brother, not at the expense of the people. While these verses here describe the militant church on earth, They're also a beautiful description of what the church will be and do in her final condition. What are we going to do in heaven? But worship Christ and fellowship with his people with gladness and simplicity of heart. Brother, what we now do on earth imperfectly, we will do in the new heavens and earth perfectly. 
There we'll be together. There we will fellowship and there we will praise. There we will love each other. Not imperfectly, but perfectly. That's what we're going to do. This is but preview. This is but warm up. So let me ask you and let me ask myself, is our churches here described in the early church? Does our church back in Ohio and does your church here in Holland resemble this? Not perfectly, but generally. I trust that the Lord give us grace to mend our ways when necessary and to buckle down where we've been on the mark. And may the Lord be pleased by his grace and for his glory to add daily to our congregations those being saved. Amen. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks with clarity. We pray that you'd help us to hear it. And, oh, Father, we pray that you'd put wind in our sails. Help us to go back to the old paths. Help us to be reminded of those things that the early church did, the things the early church gave priority to. And help us to pray, help us to preach, and help us to love. And may you be pleased, Father, as we plant and water to give the increase. For Jesus' sake, amen.